Welcome back, everyone. Tonight's episode is called Tools of the Trade, and in this episode, I'm going to focus on some of the indispensable tools that amphibian hobbyists should have in their collection. I've always believed that being prepared is the most important component of really anything that you set out to do in life, and the amphibian hobbyist should be no exception. There's a few tools in my frog room that have made life easier for me and for my animals, and I thought it would be interesting to share some of those insights. Some of them are going to be fairly obvious, but some may come as a surprise. Either way, I think we can have a lot of fun with this topic since many of these tools are actually used off-label by hobbyists anyway, and not necessarily for their original intended purpose. Most aren't even purchased at pet stores or expos, in fact, and places like the dollar store and the container store are often great places to pick up things for use in your frog room, your salamander room, whatever. And there's going to be other tools out there that I'm not going to mention as well, but you know, if you guys out there in podcast land have some other tools, some other equipment, stuff like that that you guys are using fairly regularly that might not be something that immediately comes to the mind, by all means, shoot me an email. I'd love to hear about it. Also, I want to thank everyone for the five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you like the show, please take a few minutes, leave a nice review. Five stars is great. It helps the podcast reach a wider audience, and it gets the message out there. Also, the weather's getting nicer here in the uh, in the U.S., so if you guys are out there enjoying the outdoors, don't forget to check out some of your native species. We often focus a lot about species that are kept in captivity, at least here in the U.S. So if you're out and about, spring's beginning. It's just about... Um, it's just about getting in full swing here in the Northeast. Definitely take some time. Check out some of your native species and keep track of what you see. There's a few good apps out there. Uh, I think it's iNaturalist where you can re- uh, report a sighting that you have of a certain species and they keep it in a database and you can see which species were spotted within the within the area, etc. So that's a great way to kind of give back to the world, contribute something back into nature and really just kind of enjoy yourself. It's I did I did it last year. It's actually a lot of fun just kind of checking out the different species in your neighborhood and seeing what's there, seeing what other people find. So all right, enough of that. Let let's let's get into it. And tonight's topic as I said is going to be tools of the trade and I'm going to go down a list here, but the list really isn't in any particular order, so just keep that in your mind. This isn't like a top 10 list. I'm not going to get to like the one you know, most indispensable tool that you have to have in your skill set or your whatever, your tool set, whatever. So it's going to be kind of random, but, you know, just bear with me. Check it out. So first off, I'm going to start off with something that this is actually, this actually was the first thing that came to mind, though. I will admit that. And it's a flashlight, a good LED flashlight. So LED flashlights are almost available pretty much anywhere, and you can buy them in bulk for reasonable prices, meaning I've seen sets of three or four or five for sale for maybe like $20 American, which isn't too great. The quality is going to vary from manufacturer to manufacturer, but that's ultimately up to you in terms of how much you want to spend. They're handy when you want to get a good look into a vivarium without causing too much disruption. A great example of when a flashlight comes in handy is when you're looking for eggs in a dark frog vivarium. Finding a semi-transparent mass with little black dots in it, and of course you know I'm talking about eggs, it can be tricky on the eyes sometimes, especially if your eyesight isn't too great, which mine isn't. And if you've got a vivarium that's a little bit more hushed in terms of lighting, uh, you're keeping a rodus or something like that, you know, pamelia, whatever it is, you're keeping the, the, temper- the uh, vivarium a little bit overgrown, you've got some dark spots, flashlight's definitely going to be a great thing to check out, look for those egg spots. So 
If you don't want to disrupt the vivarium too much, that's another great reason to use a flashlight. If you don't want to start picking up cocoa huts and whatnot, if you can get that flashlight in there on an angle, check that out, see what's in there. That's a great way not to disturb species. I've inadvertently disturbed some of the frogs while they were breeding before the male had gone in and actually fertilized the eggs. Uh, I, I kind of spooked him by lifting up the cocoa hut. He took off and I don't think the eggs got fertilized. So flashlight, nice unintrusive way to get in there and take a look around. Another thing is it's great for observing nocturnal species. So you've got a nocturnal species, many, many of, well, really, I guess many, if not almost all of the tree frog species are nocturnal. So if you can handle watching them stick to a piece of glass during the day, you really want to see them out at night. Great time to do that is after lights out. So you lights out, wait maybe half an hour or so, it's not even less. You get down there with that flashlight, you'll be able to catch some of them out and about, observe them, see what they're doing, see what they look like, are they eating, do they have appropriate weight on, how does their skin look? And that's another great reason to have a flashlight is you can leave the lights out, not have to go in there, turn everything on. Hopefully you get a little bit more time observing the frog. Sometimes they can kind of close up, shut down pretty quickly once that light's on them. But if the ambient room is, is dark, I personally have had better results checking frogs out with just a flashlight. And you don't even necessarily need a super bright LED. You could go with something a little bit dimmer if you want to be a little bit more on the conservative side. This is how I observe my Philioderma corticale, my Vietnamese mossy frogs. My whole room is on timers. I've got about three different timers in different zones in the room. And after lights out, say around 830 I'll go down there, I'll, I'll bring my flashlight, I'll check out everybody who might be coming out during at night, and it's a great time to check on my Philioderma because they're most active after dark. That's when I'll see them out of the water. Their eyes will be all bright, you know, the pupils will be dilated, they look active, and it's also nice because you get to kind of see the animal more along the terms of when it's active most, and it gives you a much nicer appreciation of what it looks like. I don't know, me, me personally, I just think that they look better at night when they're out and about doing their thing rather than during the day when they're just sort of half hanging out out of the water. So flashlight is great for that. Uh, another another great aspect of the flashlight is, I mean, well, it's a flashlight. It's great for looking for stuff. But when you have an escape, I think we've all been there. You have a small species of frog or a small individual. It escapes and, you know, where are you going to go? A lot of us have frog rooms that are kind of cluttered. Most of us don't have one single freestanding unit in, in an empty room. So having that quality flashlight to be able to look into those little cracks and crevices, say you've got like a little thumbnail, you've got an epipedabates, you've got something like that, or even a larger frog, even a larger tree frog that kind of just took off and went into nowhere, that flashlight's going to be your best friend because that's what's going to help you get into all those little cracks and crevices and see what's going on in there. Also a great way for hunting out rogue crickets you know you're feeding your animals the crickets jump out of the cup whatever they jump out of the container they go behind a, a dresser or whatever it's easier to find things without having to tear the whole room apart which i have done in the past and tearing a whole room apart to look for something that's about the size of a dime is a big hassle and it's not something you're going to want to do so the flashlight makes that a lot easier moving on i want to go to the number two i really wouldn't call it a tool i'd really call it more of a piece of equipment but that's deli cups and for dart froggers, we all know that deli cups are the preferred container for rearing fruit flies. Uh, people also raise hornworms in them. They raise bean beetles with some modifications, but they come in really handy for rearing prey items. But besides the obvious, though, there are many other uses for deli cups, and they can be easily obtained, really. I mean, you can oftentimes get deli cups for free. Here in the neighborhood, we have a couple of different takeout places. There's a Chinese takeout and there's a deli, and we save the 
32 ounce and the 16 ounce deli cups because they come in so handy. I repurpose them for the things. So if you're a big fan of going to the deli, getting takeout, whatever, odds are you're going to get a couple of those containers whenever you order food, wash them out, save them. They're going to come in really handy. So what I would recommend to start would be, let's see, where can I go first on this list? Because this one I think was really the most versatile. All right. Uh, they, the lids. Save the lids because they make a great substitute for Petri dishes. And by that, I mean people out there who breed dart frogs. If you don't breed dart frogs, you can still incorporate a Petri dish or, in this case, a deli cup lid under a cocoa hut. It provides the frogs a little bit of a drier place to hang out while still being concealed. And they lay eggs on them. So the popular technique is to leave a Petri dish underneath there because it fits perfectly underneath the coconut. You would put the lid on it once eggs are deposited and you'd, you'd raise it outside of the vivarium until the, tadpoles, until the tadpoles developed. You can do this with a deli cup lid. The only problem is you don't have the top. So in my case, what I would do is when I would have frogs deposit on top of the deli cup lid, I just remove the lid. I'll put it in a reasonably sized Tupperware container with over some wet paper towel. And I've had tadpoles develop no problem in that. It's just basically like a big incubator. So if you don't want to shell out top dollar on Petri dishes, you can definitely go with deli cup lids, especially if you don't have a particularly large collection. I mean, if you've got a couple of frogs that are breeding, you could totally get away with using the lids from a deli cup. Another great repurpose for uh, deli cup lids is also they make a great feeding station. So with their shallow lips, they can easily contain smaller non-climbing prey items like waxworms, black soldier fly, things like that. Uh, I've used dubia nymphs in there because they don't climb particularly well. Tiny silkworms, they effectively act as like a little dish and I use them quite a bit for some of the species that take uh, a slightly larger prey. I mean, bear in mind, these aren't huge prey items, but it also keeps the animal from ingesting a lot of substrate and whatnot. So if you have... I mean, I know wax. I mean, waxworms aren't particularly something you should use as a regular feeder because they are high in fat. But if you have a smaller frog that will take them, like let's just say for argument's sake, you have, uh, say you have like a, a terribilis, Phyllobates terribilis or terribilis, depending on who, how you pronounce it. But uh, they'll take waxworms pretty easily. So rather than have the worm kind of wiggle off and just disappear into the substrate, you put one of those deli cups down, those deli cup lids down, you put a couple of wax worms on there or super worms or whatever it is that you're using. And this way the frogs have almost like a little table to eat off of the maggots or the flies, or whatever. They won't disappear into the substrate. And the lip of the lid is enough that the frogs can get over it and not have to really look for the, look for the prey items. So that's what I'll do. And then when the, once the frogs foul them, I mean, they're going to get them dirty. They're going to, you know, they're going to crap on them and whatnot then you can just you can rinse them off or you can throw them out it's just that simple so that makes a great feeding station slash bowl um the larger so well, well we'll move up the size the i think it's the 16 ounces i think that's maybe like a pound size those make great water dishes for tree frogs and they can also make good food dishes so they can be washed out they can throw them away just as you can with the lids and if you want to, I mean, you, you can, you, you can wash these things pretty vigorously. I mean, I think honestly, you can get them cleaner than you would be able to get some of the other more like, like the plastic dishes. I'm not a big fan of those because I think that they harbor bacteria a little bit more easily because of their porous substrate, their porous surfaces. So I'm a big fan of things that you can either clean really, really thoroughly or discard. And the 16 ounce deli cups make a great alternative to some of the more, you know, herp designed 
uh, food and water dishes. I just happen to like them. So the great thing about the 16-ounce deli cups is they make a great water dish for tree frogs. You can maybe make a little hole through them. I've done this before. And you can zip tie them to a branch or a, a piece of cork bark or whatever it is, something higher up in the enclosure. They can soak in that. You can also put more jumpy species of prey like crickets in there. Uh, larger dubia roaches, etc., and they'll kind of just hang around in that cup, hopefully wiggle around enough for the frogs to notice. They can go directly into that cup, eat them out of that cup, and not have to come into contact with the substrate or anything else. So that's another reason that deli cups are work really well for stuff like that. I mean, I know people are concerned about things like impaction and the unintentional consumption of substrate. Well, the best way to get an animal to not consume substrate is to eliminate it from the equation. And feeding out of deli cups like this works particularly well. I mean, there's really no reason why uh, a decent-sized tree frog can't be just conditioned to cup feed out of a deli cup somewhere in the enclosure. So that's another great use for them as well. Another great use is transport. Deli cups make the perfect transport size for many species of frogs. In fact, most of them get shipped in some kind of deli cup. If you want to bring a frog to a vet, wherever you want to move it out of its enclosure, you want to, you know, you're giving it to a friend, whatever it is that you're doing with it, a deli cup is probably going to be the way to go. And they also make great holding spots for maintenance. There's no reason, really, there's really no reason for you to touch your frog at all if you have deli cups. So if you can kind of get, I mean, well, just to backtrack a little bit, I learned this technique from the tarantula community because, you know, most of you know, I already, I also keep tarantulas, mm -hmm. but you, you generally don't want to come into contact with your tarantula. So what people will do is they'll use a paintbrush or something like that, or, or a, um, a, a, a soft, something, something soft that's not too you know, not too intense, but, and just kind of slowly guide the spider from the back end into the front of the deli cup and then put the lid over it. Then you can move it however you want. Uh, you know, not to get too off topic, but you guys know I'm into tarantulas. So if you want to kind of see that method for rehousing tarantulas that can be applied to frogs, go check out some of those videos. There's a lot of them on YouTube. Uh, I think Tom Moran has some pretty good ones and so does, um, uh, Richard from the tarantula collective. But the point is, you can get that deli cup in front of your frog. Say it's a white street frog. Put the deli cup right in front of it. Get behind it with the lid. Give it a little, you know, little tap, a little nudge, and it'll generally just kind of hop forward right into that cup. You can put the lid on behind it. Set it to the side. Do your maintenance. Change your substrate. Change your water. But whatever it is you got to do, get it in the car. Get it to the vet. And at the end, you open up the cup. You can just put the whole cup back in the tank, and the frog will come out its own. Or if you just very gently coax it out, that's another way to get it out. And there's no reason that your hands have to come into contact with the frog at all. So if you're really worried about your frog's skin, you're worried about that. That's the best way to do it because you're not coming into contact with it by, by a hair. So moving on, let's get to number three. And that this one's important. This was really something that you definitely should have is a temp gun. And living in the times of COVID that we are now, we've all seen the benefits of temp guns. And if you're not familiar with what a temp gun is, it's essentially a no contact thermometer. It'll have uh, like a little beam that will go out and, and it, it, picks up the temperature on whatever surface it is. People use them in hospitals nowadays. They use them in public buildings. Uh, for a while, they were pretty cheap, and now they've gotten more expensive based on the quality. But having a good quality temp gun is going to be an it's going to be an asset to you because a lot of the ambient temperatures in your room aren't necessarily accurate. And by that, I mean the ambient temperature that's displayed on your household thermostat is not necessarily going to reflect what the temperatures are immediately in the area of where your vivariums are. So it's important to spot check every little area in your frog room or near where your enclosure is going to be to make sure that you have the right parameters. 
Check it often and in multiple spots. Also check at different times of day. You might be surprised by the amount of variation. You might inadvertently be keeping a species too cool or too hot because you based your temp readings about another part of the room. Remember, heat rises. So if your household thermostat says 72 and that thermostat's about five feet off the ground, remember that's where that's where that temperature is. But it might be 68 degrees on the ground or it might be 75 a foot or two up towards the ceiling. So get a good temp gun and check everywhere you can. Another thing worth mentioning is the fact that temp guns can also, this is kind of an off-label trick, but they can indirectly detect moisture. And by that, I mean, if you're temping a wall and that wall is showing you 80 degrees, 80 degrees, and then you get to one spot that's cold and it says like 70, there might be some sort of moisture coming in from back there. So you can kind of look for moisture in your house. It, It takes a little bit of practice. I did it when we were looking for, when I used when I used to do plumbing, when I would work for slab leaks and things like that, you look for differences in temperature. You look for hot and cold spots. It can kind of give you an idea of where a room might be cooler and moister. So that's another thing to consider if you're determining where you want to place a specific vivarium, especially for a cooler species. So with my Philoderma corticale, I got a good zone in my basement that's cool, it's moist, and it stays around 68. And that's the temperature that I like to maintain them around. But some of my more uh, heat, some of my species that require a little bit more heat, I keep them higher up, upper, you know, up higher on a shelf in areas where there's more heat exchange. So those end up staying kind of near the boiler room, like my pixies and my horn frogs like it warmer, like around the low 80s or so. So I'm not going to keep them there. Yes, it's drier, but I can always supplement that with more humidity by misting, etc. So placement in the room is, 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 is a big important thing because just because it says you know, 72 or 75 or 78 on the wall doesn't necessarily mean that it's that temperature anywhere else. So you got to find that gradient and having a good quality temp gun is the best way to do that. And check it regularly. It's also a way to make sure your equipment is working working properly. If you're using, oh, a heat mat, which you should be using with a thermostat anyway, but if you want to double check it, temp gun is the best way to do it. So moving on, we'll go to number four now, and that's wire hangers. Wire hangers have to be one of the most vertical tools out there for pretty much everything. And they're great for stuff other than hanging clothes. And if you, <laughs> and some, for some other reasons, if you remember um, Faye Dunaway's portrayal of Joan Crawford in the 1981 movie Mommy Dearest, it's too young, it's too old for you younger people. But there's a scene in there with wire hangers that's unintentionally funny. But um, they can be cut and sanded to make prods, hooks, they can be used to poke holes. Obviously, if you do cut one, sand the end down, grind the end down so that it's not sharp, use caution around live animals. They can be bent into hooks, pretty much any configuration. I've used them during builds. I'll I'll take a piece of wire hanger, bend it into a U-shape, and I'll use it to kind of position, hold plants into the background until they establish. You can use it to support driftwood while you're doing a build. If you're waiting for a material to cure, like if you're waiting for your polyurethane foam to cure, you can use these as like little, you know, little, little hooks and little, uh, na- like makeshift nails and just ways to keep everything intact. And then when you're done, obviously it's a coat hanger, so you can just throw all the stuff away. So those come in really handy. The sky is pretty much the limit. If you aren't too comfortable using a wire hanger, another option you could also consider is the snake hook. I know that I, I do also keep snakes and I have a small snake hook that's collapsible. It's about 14 inches. And 
it works very, very well in terms of if I want to pull, pull, you know, if I want to pull a plant out or something like that, if I want to move some, some leaves aside, if I want to get hands in there, but not handsy enough to disturb anything, that makes a great way to flip over plants. You can look under leaf litter with it. You could maybe very, very gently kind of coax a frog out of a certain spot if you want to get it out of a water bowl or whatever. And that's another really important and valuable tool to have in terms of moving your frogs, being able to shift things around without having to put hands on it. Uh, another, well, I guess it's kind of three things. We have forceps, tweezers, and tongs. These are great for feeding larger species, but always use caution because you can injure a frog tong feeding. Be mindful of that because some of the frogs that have very, very, uh, we'll say aggressive feeding responses like pixies and Pac-Man frogs, uh, yeah, they can hurt themselves on, on, a, on a set of tongs. So you want to be considerate of how you're feeding them but in addition to feeding tongs can also extend your reach inside the vivarium they can use to you can pry out stubborn plants off of a screen off of a piece of glass you can pull out dead bromeliad leaves move a water dish hemostats which are basically like forceps that lock they're great since they can they can lock and they can handle a larger load uh, they come in different configurations there's curved tips there's blunted tips i use a blunted tip hemostat to feed my pixie since if i want to feed a mouse i can grab by that tail and kind of you know lock the forceps and lock the hemostats in place hold it over and even if he does pull very very hard you know it sounds gross but the last thing that's going to remain is the mouse's tail so i'm not going to you know i'm not going to have to worry about dropping it into the substrate or, or having it fall into another area i know that once that frog gets a hold of it then it's up to me i can release it i don't have to worry about it falling out and ending up in a place that i don't want it to end up next moving on is a glass cutter most enclosures out there on the market need some sort of modification in order to be appropriate for amphibians and dark frogs in particular need high amb uh, ambient humidity and as such it's often necessary to restrict the ventilation on a vivarium and this is done on, for this is done with a couple of different methods some people will even use like saran wrap or plastic wrap some people will use plexiglass in my opinion the best way to restrict ventilation in a dark frog situation is to just is to use glass whether you remove the screen itself or if you just cut glass and put it over the screen which is what I've done in the past I did that with a couple of my exoterras I just cut some I think these were the the 18 by 18 by 24 there's four screen panels on the top i just cut four small pieces of glass and just went it directly over the screen yes you can get more involved in that but cutting glass is definitely a skill that you want to master if you're going to if you intend on modifying uh, existing terrariums so this is where a glass cutter comes in handy they're only a few dollars they're available at most home improvement stores hardware stores big box places you can get your own glass cut if you're not comfortable cutting it yourself don't take a chance. Don't, you know, you don't have to be a hero. There's no shame in going to get it cut. You can, um, you know, you can hurt yourself. So you want to be careful. You'd want to use all safety precautions, wear gloves, wear goggles, etc. because getting shards of glass in your eye is an absolute nightmare. It's happened to me in the past. So if you're not comfortable with it, don't do it. But if you are comfortable with it, it's a small tool to invest in and, you know, be prepared to practice. You're going to screw up quite a bit before you get it right the first time. And you still might screw up a bit the second, third, 20th, and 75th, 100th time, because it does happen sometimes. You don't get the easiest piece to cut. But a glass cutter is definitely a good tool to have because you can modify aquariums pretty quickly and pretty easily with whatever scrap glass you have laying around. There's tutorials online 
There's, I mean, there's quite a few. There's quite a few tutorials, and once you kind of get the hang of it, it's not that straightforward. It's, it's pretty straightforward. So I don't want this to turn into a whole referendum on cutting glass, but if you're interested in, in pursuing that, glass cutter is maybe five bucks American, and it's a pretty easy tool to have. So moving on, this one's may, may kind of take people by surprise, but this is old picture frames. And yeah, we all enjoy looking at old photos. I mean, I get excited though when I run into frames because I see the glass. I see the scrap glass as a resource that I can reuse. Old picture frames are a great source of scrap, gra of scrap glass that's usually easy cut since it's kind of thin and it's seldom tempered. Tempered glass is going to give you a problem because tempered glass will generally shatter when you try to cut it. So the old picture frames, even the new picture frames, you can cut that glass relatively easy and a lot of times it's already in a manageable size. If you're lucky enough, you might not even have to cut it at all. If it's a standard aquarium size or a standard terrarium size, sometimes you get lucky. Or even if you have an inch hanging off the back, that's a pretty easy way to get some glass pretty much for free. You know, look, it might be up in grandma's attic. You got nothing better to do. Go up there. Hey, grandma, can I see these old photos? Yeah, all right, can I have the frames? Perfect. I have a big pile of them in my basement that I just source the glass from. So if I've got a small terrarium or a larger terrarium, I want to maybe modify a little bit. I only need a small piece of glass, maybe like a 12 by 12 inch piece. There you go. That's it. So that's something that you want to hold on to. If you go to a yard sale or whatever, you know, offer someone five bucks for 20 picture frames, take the glass. There you go. Number nine. I thought about this one a little bit, but I'm going to put canned air on this list. If you don't know what canned air is, it's basically just like an aerosol uh, of air with a little tube on the end of it. It kind of looks like, um, kind of looks like a WD-40, like a lubricant dispenser. And it's sold at office supply stores, mainly to clean dust out of computers and computer uh, computer fans, computer keyboards, etc. But it's also great for blowing cobwebs out of vivarium corners, places that you can't get to, and clearing debris off of fans in the vivarium because they're basically just computer fans themselves. So canned air can come in handy if you want to blow something around, you want to move something out of the way without really having to touch it to get in there. Um, things like misting systems, you know... Um, I've I've actually seen it where people will blow out clog misting systems, uh, clog mist heads with canned air, uh, a little bit of vinegar and water, let it soak in there, blow a little canned air out through there. It will it will clear some of that debris out if you've got some calcium or some hard water stains in there. But again, that's something that you want to be careful about. But yeah, I have done that before with success. So canned air does come in handy for something like that. Next on the list is the turkey baster. If you don't use a turkey baster in your frog room, you should definitely start, and I'll explain why. Uh, turkey basters are great for a few things. They're great for sucking up small tadpoles. So if you are breeding and you have small tadpoles that you want to take off of, say, a petri dish, or as I said earlier, like a deli cup, uh, flood the air with a little bit of water, you can generally very, very gently draw them into the end of the petri dish and then transfer them to whatever enclosure, wherever it is that you want to put them, a deli cup filled with water, into a water feature, etc., wherever. Another great use for them is they make uh, a great vacuum cleaner for sucking up uneaten food items and waste. So when I used to keep axolotls, the turkey baster was great because after they finished feeding, I could suck up all those uneaten pellets. I could suck up their waste and it did help with water quality because you were getting that material out of there as quickly as possible before it really got a chance to foul the water. Another great trick for a turkey baster is using it to test your drainage layer. So if you are using a vivarium where you have a drainage layer, say it's leaka or a false bottom or whatever, sometimes there'll be problems where you get too much water in there. 
And I've had issues in the past where those substrate, la- those drainage layers got so full that it started to spoil the substrate. So what I would do is you take that turkey baster, you jam it down into a corner, get it all the way to the bottom, draw up some of that water. And once you smell that, you can kind of tell if it's gone anaerobic. And if it's gone anaerobic, it's going to have that nasty smell to it. And that's not really what you want. So that's a good way to tell if you're misting too much or if your water feeder, your water feature failed, something like that. Then you're going to want to cut back on your misting because you don't want your substrate going anaerobic. It also makes a great way to draw out that excess water if your aquarium or your, your vivarium or whatever isn't drilled. So if you don't have a drilled terrarium with a way to get rid of excess water and you're misting heavily for whatever reason... A turkey baster isn't exactly the most efficient way of moving wastewater out, but yeah, you can do it in a pinch. Uh, pipettes work pretty well too, but generally a, a decent sized turkey baster is what you're going to need to pull a lot of that water out of a false bottom or out of a drainage layer without having to make much of a disruption to the rest of it. So turkey basters are also definitely something that you want to have. They come in really practical if you want to, if you have anything going on with the, with a, uh, with a water feature. Number 11 may seem a little odd, but I'm going to put a label maker on there. I'm extremely obsessive (laughs) if it didn't come off already, but uh, I'm extremely obsessive and I like things organized. Labeling your materials not only makes it easier for you to keep track of your things, but it also makes it easier for others in case you're not around. Now, here's an example, okay? If you're using a spray bottle to mist your frogs, odds are you're using water in there, whether it's some sort of purified water or whatever, you only want water in there. So label maker or not, you're going to want to label that as either water only or frogs only. This will hopefully keep anyone else in the home or wherever from taking that spray bottle, filling it up with chemicals like bleach or ammonia or whatever, and potentially harming your animal by putting it back without mentioning it to you. So yeah, I have heard stories of people, they'll have a dedicated spray bottle And, you know, someone else in the house will use it to clean. They'll fill that up with bleach. They go to spray their frogs down. And then guess what? They've got a big problem. So labeling your materials clearly as possible so that everybody knows what's in it is definitely something that you want to do as part of your good practice. And a label maker makes that pretty easily. So print out a label, stick it on your water bottle. It'll keep other people from messing around with your stuff. This also works the other way around too. If you want to think about the other people that you share the home with. So let's just say, for example, you feed your pixie in a big, like, plastic casserole dish. Okay, well, you're probably not going to want to eat out of that dish if this is dedicated just to feeding a massive frog. So by labeling that container frog only or whatever, uh, you know, if someone comes over for holiday, whatever you're cooking, and someone goes downstairs, they see that container, they bring it up, and they start making something in it. You're not going to have to have that awkward conversation. Like, oh, by the way, I feed my large obese frogs, cockroaches, and mice in it. So labeling things like that also keeps other people from misusing things that are dedicated solely to your animal husbandry. Another great use for a label maker is obviously labeling members of your collection. If you do have a decent sized collection and you're living with someone's, you know, your, your spouse, kids, mom, dad, whoever, and they're not too familiar with what species you're keeping by labeling the animals with their binomial name and their common name will generally help you get a handle on it. Should something happen to you, heaven forbid, uh, venomous keepers, the venomous snakes do this a lot for reasons that are much, much more important than, than we would. But let's just say, for example, there's an accident. Say you end up, you know, you're in the hospital, you're unconscious for a couple of days. 
someone goes downstairs, they need to know what to do. At least if they have a common name, scientific name, they can look it up, see what it needs, maybe contact somebody else to come in and either take the animal from you if, if, if you can't handle it for whatever reason, or, um, you know, be able to either rehome it or, or resell it or, or however you'd want to do it. Basically, what I'm getting at is if something happens to you, whoever is going to be responsible for the animals after you're you're gone, it's going to have to have some frame of reference in terms of what they are, where they came from, where they need to be, and how to care for them. And labeling something with a scientific name and the common name is a great way to do that. Last on the list, and this is, I mean, you know, this hasn't been a tremendously long list, but uh, I started thinking about some of the more unorthodox things to keep in your frog room, and the first thing that came to mind was... Uh, this winter in the United States, the Midwest and Texas especially got hit with a devastating s series of storms and temperatures went down to the single digits in areas where it hasn't uh, in anything resembling recent history. And sadly, there was a tremendous loss of, of human life and a tremendous amount of property damage that is still months later, only in it's in the beginning of being addressed. So... Uh, not to downplay the human element at all, because that is horrific, but I did hear about many, many people who had lost their entire collections, which is sad. And one of the simplest things that you can have to sort of protect your collection in the event of a natural natural disaster or in the event that you have to evacuate is a styrofoam cooler. Good old-fashioned styrofoam cooler you get at the corner drugstore during the summer, you get it wherever you get it. They're usually about maybe... 18 by 12 inches by 12 inches or whatever a couple few dollars american they're going to come in extremely handy if you have an emergency now in texas with the temperatures dropping as low as they did uh, obviously a lot of frogs that are, that are kept in captivity assuming they haven't been brumated or whatever uh they're not going to they're not going to be able to sustain temperatures down to three degrees it's it's people can't do that but if you've got a styrofoam container, hopefully that gives you some sort of an emergency kit where, okay, well, I have to evacuate. I have to be out of my home. The temperature is going to go down. All right, maybe if I can get a hold of a wet rag that's warm or some sort of a heat source that will retain its heat, get your frogs into deli cups, get them into that styrofoam cooler and let them stay there as long as they can until at least the danger of the weather has passed. So when I used to do a community outreach Especially during the winter, I generally did it in the cooler months, like the beginning of March, and the, the frogs that I would bring were relatively temperature sensitive. So rather than bringing them outside on a 30-degree day, I would pack them all into a styrofoam container, bring them out to the car, bring them into the facility that I was doing the presentation and put them back in. This way, I wasn't exposing them to the temperature extremes because styrofoam insulates particularly well. So you're going to want to have some sort of damage plan in the event that that happens and a styrofoam container is like the cheapest easiest way to temporarily house some of your frogs even if they have to be in deli cups for a couple of days it's better than them you know freezing to death over overnight things can change weather wise rapidly and if you have a good plan in mind you can potentially make it so Get your animals into some deli cups, get them into a styrofoam container. If you can get a secondary heat source in there, whether it's just, you know, a rag that you can put in the microwave for a bit, obviously make sure it's not too hot. You don't want to cook them, make sure it's not too cold, but within reason, you can provide them with an area that's more stable temperature wise, which will hopefully be able to prolong their life to the point where once things get back to normal, 
Hopefully you can get back into your home, get some heat on whatever, get them back into the vivariums. Hopefully they will have been able to have withstood that period of time within a styrofoam container. Um, as we all know, amphibians are more tolerant of hypoxia than other animals, so they don't have the same oxygen requirements consistently that a human does. Yes, there's a whole bunch of studies and papers on this. I'm not going to get into citing that, but uh, yeah, you can realistically keep a frog in a sealed styrofoam container for a reasonable period of time without having to worry about it running out of air. That's how they're shipped. Obviously, you know, do it the right way. Don't take what I say as absolute advice. But yeah, in a pinch, they will they will last a couple of days in a sealed styrofoam box. If at the very least you have no other alternatives to keep them in something resembling a consistent temperature and humidity. So I, I always encourage people to incorporate tools and materials into your frog room in the event that there is a disaster because number one, we have a lot of generally have a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of love and passion and care invested in this hobby and in these animals. So in addition to the practical things, there's always going to want to be some kind of contingency plan that you're going to want to have. And any resources like that, um, that you can get your hands on, Rubbermaid containers, styrofoam containers, etc. Those are all great things. And even though I said that the container was the last thing on the list, one thing that you really should have is first aid kit. Uh, number one for you, in case you cut yourself on a piece of glass, which I mentioned earlier. And number two, uh, a crude frog first aid kit is generally a good idea, whether you have some sort of topical medications, etc. Um, if you want to know more about that, go back to the episode I did with Dr. Andrew Logan. He and I talk about some of the more common medications and whatnot, but uh, anything that you think would be worthwhile in case of an emergency, maybe a small quarantine container, like a small Rubbermaid container, filled with anything else that you would need, any kind of topical antibiotic ointment for, uh, you know, for, for cuts and abrasions, etc. Maybe the number of a veterinarian, uh, maybe a bottle of bottled water in case your water goes bad. That did also happen in Texas where people had, uh, they, they didn't have any running water because of the, you know, when you have situations like that, infrastructure kind of collapses, your water quality just goes for a number of reasons. But that's another thing is you might want to store some emergency water as well, just even if it's just for your frog, possibly Pedialyte that works well for frogs that are underweight and under stress and anything else that you think might be handy to have in case of an emergency should your frog need it. So I mean, those are all some things that I think lend themselves really, really well to the frog room. A lot of those things, like I said, I mean, I didn't, I didn't mention things like misting bottles and spray bottles and laying and all that because that's all fairly self-explanatory. So I hope you guys enjoyed this list. And if you have any input, if there's anything else that you guys use on the regular that you wanted me to know about, hey, shoot me an email, amphibicast at gmail.com. If there's topics or anything else that you guys would like to cover, by all means, email me as well. I love input from my listeners. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it and catch up with you guys again soon.